0: Amen. Can we give the Lord a praise offering today? Wow. This is awesome. This is awesome. All right, you can have a seat. We're uh, so glad that you're here. Welcome those who are watching online, those that are here in the blue seats, those out in the great room and in the hangar. We're just so glad that you're with us today. A lot of stuff going on around this place, Um, and we want you to hear some announcements about it. Kayla Neal is going to be doing our announcements today. Kayla is uh, our Executive Director of Creative Arts. She's over all of the areas of production and worship and communication. She's one of our amazing, amazing next generation leaders here, and uh, Kayla has some information about some things that are happening, so take a look at this.
1: Couple of quick announcements for you guys. We love having the service with you guys, where our goal really is to get you connected and involved in this community, to make you feel like this is family when you come through the doors. There are a ton of ways for you to do that. If you're new here, we wanna meet you. Whether you're online, definitely let us know if you're here in person. There are people, including me in the lobby, who would love to meet you. We also wanna get you involved in groups. They've launched for the summer. That'll give you a group of people to do life with on a day-to-day basis and then you can also serve on a team. I love, love, love our teams. There are so many ways that you can serve. Even if you think you don't have a gifting or you don't have anything to offer, I promise you that God can use you here. All of those ways to get connected can be found on our website. Something that I am a really, really excited about that's coming up that also marks the year since we have been able to gather back in person again are our outdoor services. So we want you to save the date for the July 4th weekend. So that's Saturday, July 3rd, and Sunday, July 4th. We're gonna have our three normal weekend services but we're gonna do them outside we're gonna have amazing worship an amazing message it's a great time for you and your family to hang out and have tons of fun invite your friends and your family and we'll see you there If you have a heart for the global church, we have an awesome opportunity coming up to travel to Turkey in October. It's a 10 day global city experience trip where you'll get to go and learn more about church history and connect with our global partner, Assemble Project. I got to go on a global city trip to Germany two years ago and it was one of the most amazing, amazing experiences I have ever had. If you wanna sign up, the deadline is July 12th. There's already people signed up. So if you wanna go ahead and get that going, definitely sign up before the deadline. We've been talking a lot about testimonies around here for the last couple of weeks, which I have loved. This week, we have a really cool group testimony story to share, so check out this video. You guys go from being part of a crazy group together to like becoming friends. When
0: did you show up? It was like a month after? it was you three, and then you guys didn't show up for a week or so. And I met Scott and I went in there and then we started going to lunch after the service together, and that's what actually made us closer. And eventually,
1: I ended up joining their small group, transit. Through transit, meeting these guys, it's it's been nice just to be able to spend time with people that you can relate to um, on a personal level, and you're not afraid to you know be vulnerable with them. Um, just just live life. So I had a pretty significant surgery that happened in my life and I ended up just sending a text to these three. Not only did they come to check on me and they brought me snacks, they brought me food. They um, stayed hours afterwards, watched a movie, and just more than uh, anything that they brought me, just the fact that they were there to emotionally help me through that. It was that moment in my head. I already knew that these guys were like my close friends because um, I, I don't know anyone else who would have done something like that for me. So I think going for me, It's like, I've
0: I've been learning just like how much I can't do life by myself. Like, I've just seen each of these people like bring something awesome and different. Like Bosco is really good at acts of service. He'll like give gifts to people. He'll do amazing things like that. Scott's really good at event planning. He's been like trying to bring quality time into the group. And you're really good at the words of encouragement just making sure everybody knows that they're respected and wanted here. So like seeing all of that and like, these are things that I can't do myself seeing as a group we all contribute and do that together. I think what makes that a lot easier for us to grow closer together is because we all have this uh, want to have God at the center of everything we do, so it definitely brings us closer together like that. Isn't that awesome? Can we give it up for that? One of the benefits of being in community. One of the things that we talk about around here, one of our strategies for accomplishing our mission is to gather the people, tell the stories, and change the world. And right at the center of that is telling the stories, the God stories of where God is at work. And I love it every time we have an opportunity to hear stories uh, of folks in our church and where God is at work and what God uh, is doing. Every story is special. Every story is unique. Everyone has a story, whether you think you have a story or not. God is at work and you have an amazing, amazing story and it's really cool to be able to share them. Uh, a couple things I wanted to, to tell you before I jump into the message. One is that we did a really cool thing yesterday. We had the Global 5K and some of you maybe participated in that. It was a hot day, but we did it early in the morning. We had a lot of folks participate, raise some money for one of our global partners, Villages of Hope, that provides um, care for about 600 Uh, of some of the most vulnerable children in Zambia and uh, raised some money. And it was just a really cool event. It was kind of the first time I felt normal in some respects over the last year, 14 months, whatever, just being able to be out with our uh, congregation. And so thank you for participating in that. Uh, If you still want to give to Villages of Hope, uh, or you want to just give to the ministry of Fairfax, you want to do it as an act of worship today. If you're online, there's a little button that says give. Just uh, click that button, you can start the process. If you're in here in the sanctuary, there are boxes in the back of the sanctuary that you can uh, put your tithes and offerings in, or text Fairfax Give to 77977. The other thing I just wanted to say is, um, Kayla mentioned about the, the, the global experience uh, where we're gonna be going to Turkey, and uh, that's gonna be such a cool event. This is a... Trip that we had planned for over a year ago, uh, and because of COVID, the pandemic, we weren't able to do. And uh, Don and I are going to be going on this trip. We've been so excited about it. Uh, we're going to we're going to be in Istanbul and visit uh, our church planter there, Bilge, who has started an amazing congregation in um, uh, an amazing city, but a really challenging city in terms of sharing the gospel. And uh, then we're going to do a tour of the seven churches of Revelation. So the seven churches that the letter of Revelation was written to when John wrote that, we're going to visit those seven churches. And that's going to be an amazing kind of historical journey, really going right back to the roots of the Christian church. And so if you've thought about going on a global impact trip and kind of just kind of uh, haven't maybe taken the step, this would be an awesome time uh, to do it. So you can go to our website, check that out. Valerie Nolan can answer any questions that you have about that. All right, so we're continuing our study in the book of Acts today, and we're looking at Acts 17. And Acts 17 is one of my favorite, in fact, the, the last part of Acts 17 is one of my favorite little sections in the book of Acts. Here, here's the basic context. Paul is on his missionary journey. He has some colleagues with him. They're traveling through Europe, uh, primarily in what is now modern-day Greece. He's going from city to city to city to city. He's uh, meeting people. There are all these divine appointments where God is connecting with people. He's sharing the gospel, and uh, a lot of people are coming to Jesus, and churches are being planted in all of these different cities. And uh, all kinds of people are coming to Jesus, so it's a multi-ethnic, multi-national, um, Jews, Gentiles, a slave, free, male, female, all, of, all these people who are coming to Jesus. It's just amazing, and then Paul comes to Athens, and Athens is a different kind of city, Athens is the intellectual center of the Roman world. It's filled with philosophers from all different kinds of uh, worldviews. There are Stoics there, there are Epicureans there. Uh, They would gather together in the marketplace, kind of an open air intellectual center to debate ideas. In fact, it was in that marketplace in Athens that Socrates would go on a regular basis to debate with people, advance his philosophy The marketplace in Athens was was basically like the first century Oxford University, or the first century Cambridge University, or the first century Anderson University. I had to get a shout out to my alma mater in there. And uh, so Paul gets to Athens, and uh, he gets there before the rest of his kind of traveling companions. And He sees some things in the city and and feels compelled to respond to some things just by himself. And this is what we read starting in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. And a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, Why is, what's this babbler trying to say? They really thought Paul was kind of intellectual, lightweight. Others remarked, uh, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection, which they had never heard before. And then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Oropagus on what is oftentimes referred to as Mars Hill, kind of the city elders, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing such strange ideas to our ears and we want to know what they mean. And then there's like this parenthetical statement uh, that actually Luke is the one who kind of makes this parenthetical statement just to kind of let us know what the city of Athens is like and what the people in the city of Athens is like. It says, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking uh, and listening to the latest ideas. So So different than the Washington DC area, right? And then Paul stood up in the meeting of the Orophagos and said, men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Now it's interesting that he calls this group very religious, that he starts this little talk by saying, I see that you are very religious. Because in many ways, traditional religion in Athens was kind of on the way out. Most of the philosophers were not religious at least not in the traditional sense. All of the idols that filled the city were kind of relics from a bygone era. And yet Paul tells them that in every way they are very religious. And I think if Paul came to Washington, D.C., to the metro area, that he would say the same thing. I think that he would say, I would see that in every way you are very religious. And I think what he would mean by that statement is the same thing he meant when he said it to the Athenians. I don't think it would mean that everyone is religious in the traditional sense because uh, there's a lot of people uh, that are not religious in any kind of traditional sense. I don't think it would mean that everyone adheres to some institutional religion because more and more people in our culture do not. More and more people are not connected in any way to any kind of institutional religion. But almost everyone, I think this is what he was talking about in Athens, and I think this is what would be true in our culture as as well, is that almost everyone is religious in the sense that almost everyone holds positions of faith that are unprovable. Even in very secular societies, everyone has to come up with some answers, even if they're tentative answers, even if they are answers that they've never really articulated before, have to come up with some tentative answers to some fundamental questions, like, like why am I here, and does my life have purpose, and is there an afterlife, and is there a God, and what's wrong with this world, and why is there so much brokenness, and and is it is it just because there's broken people, or are the systems broken, and if the systems are broken then what's wrong with the people that keep creating the broken systems because these broken systems like aren't just some anomaly that happen in some specific location at some specific time like they happen over and over again throughout the history of the world in fact that basically is the history of the world broken people forming broken systems is kind of the history of humankind and these questions are not just like theoretical questions they're not like, how many angels can dance on the head of a pen, or whatever it is. Like is. They're not just theoretical questions, kind of interesting to talk about, it's great to kind of you know spend some time talking about, but they don't really matter. You have to at least tentatively answer these questions just in order to kind of figure out how you're gonna move forward, like how you're gonna function in the world, what are you gonna give your life to? What are you gonna spend your time doing? Why am I gonna spend my, the next 40 years of my life doing that? How am I gonna to react to the things that are going on in the world? Like You have to at least tentatively answer some of these questions or most of these questions just to be able to kind of move forward in the world. And of course, answering the question, why is the world so broken? Why is the world so messed up? Leads you to having to answer the question, what can put the world right? Like, you cannot be about the business of ending poverty or ending hunger, ending racism or ending prejudice or ending hate or ending violence or ending wars or whatever it is unless you've at least tentatively answered the question, what is broken and how does it get made right? You have to, if you're going to give yourself to something that is going to try to make things right, you have to at least try to answer the question, well, how do things get made right? right? And the answers to most of those questions are unprovable beliefs that are rooted in faith. Like we may have some evidence that supports our belief, but at the end of the day, it's still a belief. It can't be taken to a lab and tested. It can't be kind of scientifically proven, all of that. For instance, if you're convinced that there's no God, that's pretty hard to prove, right? So to live as if there's no God, or to live as if there is a God, like is, it requires faith, it's a belief. Like you can get into a room with a lot of smart people, and maybe some of you have done this, maybe some of you have done this recently, you can get in a room with a lot of smart people, argue about whether God exists, whether God doesn't exist, all that, you can do that all night long, and if the beer's involved, if beer's involved, beer's flowing, with each beer, the arguments will become less eloquent, but way, way, way more passionate, but it's still a faith conversation. It's a conversation between people of faith who are talking about their beliefs. It's not like a conversation about whether the earth is flat or not. Like You could say the earth is flat, many people say the earth is flat, but to do so you have to deny some pretty hard scientific data. If, if you go to Dr. Michael Summers, Dr. Michael Summers is a part of our congregation. He's a professor of planetary science and astronomy at George Mason University. He's an amazing, amazing man. If you go to Dr. Summers and you say, this person thinks the earth is flat. Like, Dr. Summers, can you show this person some proof that the earth is not flat? Dr. Summers will be happy to oblige you. For hours, he will be happy to oblige you. But if you go to Dr. Summers and say, I have a friend here, I've had this crazy friend here who thinks that there's a God. Like, can you show them some proof that there is no God? You're likely to get kind of a knowing smile and a response that goes something like this. Well, I certainly have scientist friends that don't believe in God. I certainly have people that study the heavens like I study the heavens and and, uh, say, well, I've never bumped into God before, all of that. But as for me, every time I examine the heavens and I've heard him say this over and over again, I see the handiwork of God and I'm reminded of Psalms 19.1 that says, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the works of his hands. All that to say that Paul is reminding these Athenian philosophers and he's reminding us that everyone is religious. Everyone is a person of faith. The question is not whether you are a person of faith or whether you're a person of science or whether you're a person of faith or whether you're a person of reason. Everyone is a person of faith. The question is, what or who have you put your faith in? And is it big enough to answer all of these questions that we need to answer just to kind of move ahead in life? And that's exactly where Paul challenges the Athenian philosophers to rethink their worldview. This is what we read in verse 23. Paul says, for as I walked around your beautiful city here in Athens and looked carefully at your objects of worship, all of these idols that were in the city, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So they had created an altar and said, this is to a God that's unknowable. Like we just don't even know who this is. And Paul says, now what you worship is something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. Now Paul's very smart in the way that he engages the people of Athens uh, with the gospel. In fact, as you read through Acts, as you read through um, the letters of Paul, the epistles of Paul, you will see that over and over again that Paul is, is rather agnostic when it comes to methodology. That he doesn't kind of have this cookie cutter way in which you share the gospel and here's kind of the five bullet points of the gospel and every time I share the gospel with, no matter who I share the gospel with, I kind of do it in exactly the same way. Paul shares the gospel, the same gospel, the content is the same but he shares the same gospel in very very different ways with very different people depending upon where they're coming from what their journey is what their life experience has been how they're going to respond like paul doesn't just like say well i'm just going to do it this way and then uh, you know shame on you if you don't respond no paul wants to share the gospel in a way where it's likely that the people will understand and be able to not be so off put by it that they'll actually respond to it. And so he uses a lot of different ways. And here um, is a very, very different way that he shares the gospel. He's very disheartened as he sees this entire city of Athens filled with all of these idols because he believes that there is this God and this God who loves us so much, he died for us and all of that, he believes all that, so he's disheartened. There's idols everywhere, but instead of like judging them or ranting about, you shouldn't have all these idols or whatever, Paul reasons with them. He dialogues with them. In fact, to a certain degree, Paul uses the Socratic method, which they would have been very familiar with in Athens, to reason with them. He acknowledges that they have different worldviews, and rather than just criticizing their worldview from his worldview, which, by the way, is the way almost every debate that you see on TV or in social media or around the dinner table at Thanksgiving or Christmas. Like that's the way almost every debate goes is like someone from the perspective of their worldview judges and criticizes another worldview and then the person from another worldview judges and criticizes this worldview and that never ends well. Like, I've never seen, on what I've seen on TV, at news, what I've seen, like, watching threads, you know, on social media, or being around the dinner table at, like, special occasions, I've never seen that process of, like, judging another worldview for my worldview and kind of criticizing it from that perspective. I've never seen that end by someone going, you know what, I think you're right. It just just never ends, just like it hardens position, it just kind of whatever, like even if your position wasn't strong coming in, it's like it becomes harder the more you feel attacked from the other side. And Paul really takes a very, very different approach. Paul tries to enter into their worldview, respect it, appreciate it, acknowledge some things about it that seem to be like pointing in the right direction but also pointing out what's missing. And what he basically says is this, you obviously have a sense that all of these gods, all of these idols that are kind of all throughout the city that you've created with your, with your own hands, you obviously have a sense that, that they're not enough, that they're not big enough, that they, they're not comprehensive enough to answer all the questions that you have about life because you have this altar over here that says to an unknown God. So you sense that there's something missing. You sense that there's something more. You just don't know what it is. And it feels like it's unknowable. It feels like it's not something that you can ever really get your mind around or relate to in any kind of personal way. And it's an amazing statement. It's an amazing statement on Paul's part because basically what he's saying is this, There is something inside you that is intuitively pointing to God. You just aren't sure who this God is, and you've become convinced that you really can't know this God, that this God is not able to be known. This God is beyond knowing. And I think the same thing is true for almost every human being like regardless of where we are in our spiritual journey, regardless of what culture we come from, what our background is, what our religious background is, whatever it is, that whether we believe in God, don't believe in God, have convinced ourselves God doesn't exist, you know, believe that God does exist, whatever, there's something inside every human being that is intuitively pointing them to God. For many, maybe most, they, they just aren't sure like who this God is. They become convinced that whoever it is or whatever <laughs> this God is, that this is a God who's beyond knowing. Now, depending on the culture, the unknown God <laughs> or the unknown gods in that culture may be very different. I think in our 21st century Western culture, one of the things that we have turned into an unknown God is our moral values. First of all, our, our culture is pretty schizophrenic when it comes to moral values. Because on the one hand, we say, I think kind of as a culture, as a general kind of consensus, like on the one hand, we say, well, we shouldn't impose our moral values on someone else. That's one of the worst things that you could ever do is to impose your moral values on someone else. It's incredibly judgmental. Your values are your values. My values are my values. You shouldn't try to impose your values on me. I shouldn't try to impose my values on you. And yet, We do it all the time. like, And I'm not just talking about religious people, Christians, I'm just talking about as a culture, we do this all the time, everybody does it. And most of the time when people do that, it's not just the expression of like a personal belief. Like it's one thing to say, like, I would prefer that you not do that because that, you know, it's a personal belief for me, and and I and hold that closely, and I'd prefer you not do that because this, you know, offends me in some way. Like, that's a personal expression that reflects your personal moral values. But when you say that's wrong, that's wrong and that needs to stop, that is a much different statement. That's a declaration that there is some kind of independent standard of infallible moral absolutes, some independent standard of infallible moral norms that exist apart from my feelings, apart from your feelings. It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what you think. Like, this is not something that's up for discussion. This is wrong, and it needs to stop. This isn't wrong because I think it's wrong. It's not wrong because you think it's wrong. It's just wrong, and it needs to stop. Now, the question, of course, is, what is that independent, infallible standard of moral absolutes. Like, is it the government? Is it the laws that are presently on the books? Is it societal norms that have developed over time? Is it cultural consensus? Like most of the culture kind of views it this way, because if it is, those things are constantly changing. I doubt that anyone today would want to treat the laws or the societal norms or the cultural consensus in the United States in the 1800s as infallible moral absolutes. In fact, that would be true even just going back 50 years or 25 years. Most people don't want to treat the societal norms and the cultural consensus even as early as 25 years ago as like infallible moral absolutes. I mean, when you look at the cultural consensus now compared to like 25 years ago, when you look at the societal norms now versus 25 years ago, most people are not saying, oh, those were infallible, those were infallible norms that we want to impose upon our culture. And I doubt that anyone living 300 years now, 200 years now, 300 years now, will want to treat the laws or societal norms or the cultural consensus of 21st century, of the 21st century as infallible moral absolutes either. But when someone says that's wrong and it needs to stop, usually they don't mean that it's wrong right now, but it was fine five years ago. Usually they don't mean it's wrong right now, but it was fine 100 years ago or 200 years ago. No, almost always what they mean is, that's wrong. <laughs> like, that is wrong. That attitude is wrong, that behavior is wrong, that's wrong, and it's never been right. Even if the laws of the day 100 years ago or 200 years ago allowed it, still, it is wrong. It is not right. Even if the society 50 years ago or 100 years ago or 200 years ago accepted it, even if that was the 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 cultural consensus of the day 200 years ago, no, doesn't matter. It was wrong then, it's wrong now, and it'll be wrong 200 years from now. Now, if Paul were here today, I think what he would say to our culture is the same thing he said to the Athenians. I think he would say, I see that you have an altar to an unknown God, a God that you may not be able to identify, a God that you may not Feel like you ever could really know, a God that you may even deny exists, but you sense that there is something outside of yourself, something above yourself, something bigger than yourself that empowers you to say, that's wrong, and that's always been wrong. You may have rejected the idea of moral absolutes that are given by God. You may not use God language in the way that you talk about it, but the altar that you've built to this unknown God is right there in the marketplace for everyone to see. And then Paul wraps this whole thing up by saying, I wanna tell you, I wanna tell you some things that you can know about this, unknown God. He is not as unknowable as you think. In fact, God is very knowable. And then in just a few short verses, one of of my favorite passages in Scripture, in just a few short verses, Paul helps them to know the God that for them was unknowable. And this is what Paul says. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. It's not a God who's dependent upon us because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth as he determined the time set for them in exact places where they should live. It's a sovereign God. God did this so that men and women would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. This is a God, this unknown God, is a God who is way closer, way closer than you ever thought God Could be. For in Him, this God, we live, we move, we have our being, we exist in this God, we find life in this God. As some of your own poets have said, we are His offspring. Your own poets have hinted about the fact that this is a God who. We can't create, this is a God who has created us. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, since we have been created by God, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. This is not a God that you can create, this is a God who created you. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, talking about Jesus. And he has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Paul says this is a God who is so much bigger than anything that you could ever craft with your own hands. This is a God who is so much bigger than anything that your mind could ever comprehend or, or form. Like this is a God that is so much bigger than all of this. This is not a God that, that you created. This is a God who created you. This is not a God who is dependent on you. This is a God who you are dependent on for everything. This is a God who, who loved you so much and was so willing to be vulnerable that he died for you. So it's a, This is a God, this unknown God, I wanna tell you that this is a God who loves you so much he died for you, who loves you so much he was willing to become vulnerable, but this is a God who even in the midst of that vulnerability and that willingness to sacrifice and to lay his life down, this is a God who is so powerful that he can rise from the dead. Like this is this God, I'm telling you this is this God that is known, that is knowable, that you can know. And this is a God who more than anything else wants to be in relationship with you. Like he doesn't want to be the unknown God. He wants to be the God who is known. He wants to be the God that you know that you can laugh with and you can cry with. He wants to be the God who when things are going great in your life and awesome and your relationships are fantastic that you can celebrate with and you can party with. But he wants to be the God when your life is falling apart who is able to enter into your suffering and cry with you and mourn with you and weep with you. This is a God who wants to be present with you in the joy and the celebration and wants to be present with you in the pain and the suffering. This is a God who does not run from suffering. This is a God who does not distance himself from our pain. This is a God who enters into our pain. This is a God who took on pain for us because he loves us that much. That's this God. That you say is unknown, but you can know him. He wants to be a God that you can talk to and tell him anything, and you don't have to keep anything, and you can confess anything, and you can express your feelings, your awesome feelings, your laments, your joy. You can talk to him, but you can also sit quietly before him and just listen. And this is a God who is the God who can forgive you and redeem you and restore you and heal you so that you can join with him in this mission to redeem and restore and heal this world. This is a God that you can know. God, we give you thanks. We will never be able to fully comprehend everything about you. Paul says that we look through a glass dimly or darkly. That we'll not really fully understand everything until your kingdom comes in all of its glory and we experience you in all of your fullness. But even this side of heaven, even in the meantime, between your first coming and your second coming, you are a God that we can know, that we can laugh with and cry with, that you enter into our joy and into our suffering, that we can tell everything to and can also just be still and listen to your still, small voice. That you are a God who redeems us, who wants to forgive us, who wants to restore us, who wants us to experience the life you have created for us to experience. And we give you thanks that in the name of christ the one who makes god known in the name of christ we pray amen